Good afternoon. If you're wondering why Trevor was praying for my voice, you might know now. <laughs> um, I'm fighting off a cold, but uh, have not talked all morning up till this point pretty much. So hopefully we'll be able to make it through the sermon. If you have a Bible, you can take it and turn to Acts chapter 16. Acts 16, and we'll be in verses... 6 through the end of the chapter, chapter, verse 40, this afternoon. So after a, a few weeks, we're ready to leave behind Acts 15 and the Jerusalem Council, recognizing that the decisions that were made at that council are going to have enduring effects throughout the rest of the book of Acts, throughout church history, even up until the present day, where we are able to rejoice in the fact that we as Gentiles are counted in um, as equal heirs of salvation along with the Jewish people. And in fact, it's this radical unity in the midst of diversity that we're going to see in Philippi this afternoon, and as well in the, the upcoming journeys that, that Paul and his companions make. The people in Thessalonica in chapter 17 are going to describe Paul and his companions as men who turn the world upside down. And I think as we soak in these stories of conversions in in Philippi, that of a, a God-fearing businesswoman, of a demon-possessed slave girl, and of a Roman jailer, we're, gar- we're going to see how this accusation is not an exaggeration, that in fact uh, the world was being turned upside down by these men and by the gospel. And so let's make that our big idea, a simple one that will apply to lots of different passages, but we'll just say this, true Christianity turns the world upside down. True Christianity turns the world upside down, and I want to think about what that looks like in Philippi, and then hopefully see what it looks like in our lives and in our culture. True Christianity turns the world upside down. But before we get to Philippi and see what happens there, we need to look at Acts 16 verses 6 through 13 and see how Paul and his companions got to that prominent city of Macedonia. So last week we saw that uh, Paul left Antioch. He's now with Silas and he is traveling by land to the, the northwest through Syria and Cilicia before arriving back in the cities that he and Barnabas had been to, but this time it's all happening in reverse order. So rather than taking a boat up to the the bottom of Turkey and then uh, heading around, they are heading northwest across land, and so they land in in Derby and and Lystra first. Remember that they pick up Timothy there, who was a promising young disciple that Paul wanted to bring along as they were strengthening the churches and seeing them increase in numbers every day. And so pick up with me their travels in Acts 16, beginning in verse 6. I meant to have a, a map on the screen behind me, but failed to do that. So if you have a map in the back of your Bible, feel free actually to, you can look at that a map maybe of the, the second missionary journey. Um, you, you might find it more helpful to look at the map while I read than, than the text and to see exactly where um, Paul was going. So I apologize that's not behind me, but uh, hopefully you'll be able to track in some way. Acts 16, and I just want to read verses 6 uh, through 12 for now. It says, And they went through the region 
of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So, setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. Two things to note in those verses, one informational, the other applicational. Briefly, informationally, did you notice Luke's switch from they to we in verse 10? Just an interesting little note that we can say that in part what's going on here is that along with Paul and Silas and Timothy, now we know that Dr. Luke, the author of this book, is now a part of the mission team. Uh, And so Luke, who was a man who meticulously gathered eyewitnesses, is now an eyewitness himself and is here on this journey with them. So applicationally, I want us just to take a moment to think about how these brothers were led on their journey and from that to draw some principles for how we can think about God's leading in our own individual lives and in our church. In the text, as you look at it, it seems at first that the Spirit gives them more information about areas that they cannot go than places that they can go. Uh, They've gone back through the areas that they had previously proclaimed the gospel in, and now they're trying to head into Asia, probably towards Ephesus, but the, the Spirit says no. And then they tried to go to Bithynia, which would have been further north, but they were prevented from doing that. How the Spirit made that all clear to them is not shown here in the text. Um, but we, we see that they keep heading west until they hit Troas uh, and the Aegean Sea. And you got to stop when you hit a sea because you got to figure out where you're going from there. And it was here in, in Troas that Paul has this vision in the night of a man standing and pleading with him to come to Macedonia and to help them. He wakes the next morning, he confers with his brothers, and immediately they decide to head into the direction of Macedonia, take a boat across the Aegean Sea, they eventually land in Neapolis, and then they walk about 10 miles to Philippi. It's a momentous thing because in crossing the sea, the gospel is taken into Europe for possibly the first time. And the rest, as they say, is is history. It spreads from there and goes on. Now, from this sort of very straightforward description of how God got these guys in line with his plan, let me just offer some thoughts about how God guides us in similar ways as his spirit indwelt children. And I've taken these principles shamelessly from John Stott because he said them so well uh, in his commentary. So he says of the guidance that God gives us that it happens in part in these ways, three ways, and they're sort of twin ways. So The first is that his guidance is negative and positive. As we're seeking for God to guide us, his guidance can be seen as negative and positive. There are some doors that are open to us, 
and some that are closed. Closed. And, and while there may be times where we are called by God to, to push on a closed door or to not go through an open door, it holds true that God's guidance not only comes in, in showing us what we should do, but it also comes in, in showing us what we most definitely should not do. I can remember a moment of clarity as Andrew and I were seeking God's will while we were between our, our time in our previous church and our time here at Grace. And there was a desire of sorts building in my heart to, to plant a church with some people that we deeply loved. But before I could get beyond just sort of some random thoughts that I had in a moment that was completely unrelated, the Spirit said very clearly to my heart, you will not start a church with these people. It was a moment of deep clarity. He didn't tell me what I was going to do, but he did tell me what I was not going to do in that moment. And that negative guidance is anything but negative. It's encouraging, it's, it's clarifying, and it's very releasing. So as you're seeking guidance from God, realize that it can be negative. Here's what you should not do, and it can be positive. Here's where I want you to go. So next, it can be circumstantial and, relation, and, and rational. Circumstantial and rational. The brothers read the signs around them as they are journeying, journeying as well as the unique circumstance of a vision from God that comes to Paul. But they didn't just follow every fancy and, and chase every sign that they, they saw. They thought about what was going on and how God was guiding them. And God uses our circumstances to help us discover his will. We utilize all the different signs and the situations that he gives us, but we also use our brains and our reason that he has also given us. Sometimes we are called to go against what circumstances or reasons say, but most often they are good guides for us. Circumstances and our rational minds help us to understand God's will. And right alongside them we find that God's guidance is third, personal and corporate. It's personal and it's corporate. Paul's the only guy who has a vision. But the decision to obey it is made by the whole team. And so too, we, we individually listen to how God is speaking to us in his word and through circumstances and by his spirit. And even with supernatural signs and visions. But we also take all of these things to our fellow spirit-indwelt brothers and sisters in Christ. We privately consider how we think the Lord is guiding us how the Lord is guiding our church, but then we corporately pool all of that information and seek his will together. So God's guidance is negative and positive. It is circumstantial and rational. It is personal and corporate. And we could say a lot more about all of these things, but I'm just going to leave further application to the spirit and to conversations that we have around the potluck table. So, but it's this kind of guidance that gets these brothers to Philippi. At the end of, of verse 12 is where they land there. And then the rest of this chapter takes place in Philippi. Uh, and it all occurs in less than a week's time is what it looks like. Verses 13 through 15 happen one Sabbath by the river. And then the events of verses 16 through 40 happen within a roughly 24-hour period, just about a, a few days later. So we find that uh, more it's morning in verse 13. I'm sorry, not in verse 13, um, in verse 16, it's morning. In verse 25, it's midnight. And in verse 35, it's the next morning. And so this is all just 
the events of one day. So let's join our friends in Philippi and see what happens as the, the good news of the gospel comes to town and intersects the life of a wealthy businesswoman, a demon-possessed slave girl, and a Roman jailer, and then turns the whole world upside down. I want to read Acts 16, 13 through 40, and I'm going to take a drink of water before I do that. So... <laughs> beginning in verse 13. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we, were, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, the seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized, and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. When they inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, He put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him, and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night, and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house, and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household, that they had believed in God. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police, saying, Let those men go. 
And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men, who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia, and when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. It's hard for us to grasp just how countercultural and life-changing the gospel was, especially in the ancient world. But it really did, when it came to these towns, it turned everyone's world upside down. And I think if we linger here and think about these three people, that we'll start to see how that happened. The first person is, is Lydia. So Paul and Silas, Timothy and Luke, uh, arrive in Philippi. They normally would have gone to the synagogue, we know. Uh, but there seems to have been... Uh, there seems to not have been a synagogue in the town, so they went to the place of prayer, which was about a mile outside of the city, beside a river, possibly in the open air, possibly under some sort of covering, we don't know. But the group that gathered seemed to be made up mostly, if not completely, of women, which would explain why there was no synagogue, because ten Jewish men were required to form a synagogue. Uh, the location outside of this city may mean that the city was also a little bit hostile to the Jewish faith. We know that because they, later on, assuming that these guys are, are Jews, saying these men are Jews and are disturbing our city. I, I love that it's it's to this humble gathering that the brothers arrive when they get to Philippi. That's the first place they go. The lack of men was not a reason for them to not go to this place. They remind me of, of Jesus goes to the Samaritan woman, and they engaged with these women, and they shared the gospel with them. They shared the good news about Jesus. And Luke highlights this one woman in particular, a woman named Lydia from Thyatira. She was a businesswoman. Her trade was in purple fabric, which would have been a, a luxury and a high-priced item. Because of this, along with the fact that she owned her own house, we can probably assume that Lydia was was rich, that she was well-educated. Uh, her family, there's no mention of a husband, so she was likely single at this point. She was uh, either widowed or divorced or never married. We don't, we don't really know. Um, she may have had children. There's, there's talk about her household, which could be the children in her house, it could be the people that, that worked in her house. We're not, we're not really sure. Uh, but what we also know is that uh, she, was a, she was not ethnically Jewish, but she was a God-fearer. So she had adopted Jewish practices and, and customs into her life. And that's why she's down here at the river. Well, at some point in this prayer meeting, uh, Paul is invited to speak to this group of Jews and God-fearers. And so he spoke about Jesus as the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies, as the Messiah, as the, the greater Moses, the greater David, the one who had become to be the, the final sacrifice. Whatever Paul said, we, we know that the text tells us in verse 14 
that the Lord opened Lydia's heart to pay attention to what Paul said. Not just to, to understand it, but to see the beauty of the gospel, this, this life-changing truth. And Lydia believes. This is a, uh, a glimpse into what happens in all true conversions. The, the gospel is faithfully communi- communicated in the power of the Spirit, and then the Spirit comes and open hearts, opens hearts to receive the truth and to believe. If you are a Christian, it's because someone proclaimed the gospel to you in the power of the Spirit, and because God's Spirit opened your heart to see it as true. And as we share the gospel, we share it in the power of the Spirit, and we trust that God will open people's hearts to receive the truth. We don't open hearts, but we trust that God can. Lydia seems to have been uniquely primed and prepared to receive the gospel. Through her love for the Jewish faith or or maybe other means, but there, there were questions arising in her heart, maybe questions that, that Paul just answered without even knowing it. And, and while it's just as miraculous as any other conversion, it would seem as if Lydia walked through the door of this gospel invitation as easily as we just walked into this place. It was, it was almost inevitable. And I would say to us, brothers and sisters, that there are Lydia's in our city. There are men and women and children who God is preparing and God is drawing, people who are primed and ready to hear the gospel. And when we share it to them by the Spirit's work, their hearts will be opened so easily. It'll seem like it was just inevitable that they were going to become a Christian that day. But may we be faithful to seek them out and to proclaim the gospel, trusting that God will open hearts. And so Lydia, a single woman, a Gentile woman, is the first convert in Europe, the first Christian ever in Europe. And having believed she was baptized, maybe right there at the river, but she was also, uh, her household was baptized. uh, And having believed and been baptized, Lydia convinced Paul and his companions to, to come back to her house come to my house. I want to give you some food. I want to offer you hospitality. Why don't you stay with me while you're in Philippi? What a beautiful evidence of God's transforming grace in her life, that she graciously welcomes God's servants into her home. She provides food and shelter for them. This is what happens when a heart is transformed by the gospel. It overflows in love for others, especially brothers and sisters in Christ. These acts of hospitality are an evidence of God's grace in her life, and acts of hospitality are an evidence of God's grace in your life. Don't underestimate the act of love found in in cooking a meal for someone, in inviting them over to your house, in housing someone for a period of time. This is an evidence of true, genuine faith. Don't diminish it. Well, from the story of Lydia, we go to a much different woman. In verses 16 through 18, we meet a slave girl. Excuse me. 
this slave girl is almost the exact opposite of Lydia when you think about it. She's possessed by a demon. She's owned by other people. And she is exploited for financial gain that she never saw. This demon gave her the ability to see into the future. And so there were these men in town who made money off of that. They used her situation for their own gain. We get a feel for who these guys were when she's released from her oppression. And they are mad. They're angry. Why? Because their hope of financial gain is gone. Who cares if she's been released from oppression? Now we can't make money. If you are tempted to think that that girls in desperate situations like this don't exist today, or that men don't still do despicable things like this, then you are mistaken. Throughout the history and throughout the world, people, especially women, have been taken advantage of by men with power. And it's no different in our world. The reality of human trafficking is alive and well in our, in our country. It's in our city. It's in this neighborhood. Prostitution, other forms of oppression are common in our world. So don't pretend like this is different. Closer to home, I'm compelled to, to look deeply into the news that came out of Houston this week about 700 boys and girls who were reported as being abused in the shadow of Southern Baptist churches in our country over the past 20 years. 700. And that's just the people who reported abuse. Innocent children who were exploited for the personal pleasure of powerful men, and often men who were pastors. men who represented Christ in their church and in their community and to those kids. Men who were just like the men in this passage. Men of whom Jesus, meek and mild, says that it would be better that they had a millstone hung around their neck and that they were thrown into the sea than to cause a little one to stumble and men in situations that we as a church can't turn a blind eye to, especially as a Southern Baptist church. Paul met this desperate girl. She was there every day as they were traveling down to the river, and every day she came out and she announced that these guys were servants of the Most High God and proclaiming the way of salvation. And she followed them and proclaimed this. And this was true, but it was probably a tactic of Satan to associate this church with this woman who is possessed by a demon. Not the best spokesperson for you when you come into town. It doesn't look great. That's probably why it happens. And after a number of days, Paul, the text says, is annoyed. He is distressed. He is grieved by the contempt that's brought on the gospel, by the enslavement of this girl, both to a demonic power and to demonic men. And so with a word, Paul cast the spirit out of her in the name of Jesus. He frees her. This is what the gospel does. And this is what the church in the world should be known for.
for turning the world upside down, for announcing freedom from sin and death and Satan in Jesus' name, for crushing the unjust and wicked practices of men and women in Jesus' name. We're often not like Paul, so we need to confess and we need to repent and we need to lament that oftentimes we as the church have been on the wrong side of these issues in history, even to this very day. We need to grieve for how the church has used the name of Jesus for selfish gain and has harmed others. And instead, we're to be like Paul. We're to proclaim freedom. Freedom to those that are oppressed. And we're to do it no matter what it costs us. Because it cost Paul and Silas, the freeing this girl cost them, it, it cost them a severe beating without a trial. It cost them an unjust night in jail, which is right in line with what it's cost Christians throughout centuries to announce freedom in Jesus and to fight injustice. It's always hard, and it's always pushed against. Extending grace and announcing justice in the world is not cheap, but that's the trail that that Jesus went down with his mock trial and his unjust crucifixion. And so we should not be surprised that we're called to go to the same place. I think knowing that they were following in the footsteps of Jesus is probably what allowed Paul and Silas to sing songs at midnight while they're shackled in prison. And they weren't just singing to themselves, were they? I love the detail of verse 25. The prisoners were listening to them. Their fellow prisoners heard what was going on. They were witnessing the joy that Jesus can give to his children, no matter what the situation is. And God heard them too. God heard them and his response to their faith was that he shook the foundations of the prison until the doors swung open and all the shackles fell off. And the jailer who wasn't awake for the hymn sing woke up for the earthquake And he saw that all the prison doors were open and all the shackles were off. And he drew his sword and he was ready to kill himself out of honor because he knew he was going to be killed anyways in the morning when they found out that all the prisoners had escaped under his watch. But Paul stops him and he announces the the maybe greater miracle than the earthquake, which is the fact that none of the prisoners had left. They were all still sitting there. And the jailer calls for light to see if this is true. And then he finds himself on his face in front of Paul and Silas saying, how can I be saved? And that moment with the jailer kneeling before Paul and Silas, that's why the earthquake happened. Isn't it interesting? God didn't send the earthquake to set Paul and Silas free. He sent the earthquake to set the jailer free. Nobody left. It wasn't a jailbreak. It was a jailer break. (laughs) In response to his, his question, Paul and Silas tell him that he doesn't need to do anything other than to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. What a simple statement. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Salvation is not found in anything that we do. It's belief in Jesus. It's trusting that he has died for our sins and that he offers us righteousness through repentance and faith. 
And this Roman jailer believes. We know that he believes first because his faith is evidenced by the most astounding act of grace and kindness. What does he do? He washes the wounds of Paul and Silas. When they first came, he put them in the deepest, darkest part of the dungeon so that he wouldn't get in trouble. But now he's washing their wounds. And this Roman jailer also shows that that um, that he has truly been converted. He does it in the same way that Lydia did a few days before. What's he do? He takes Silas and Paul to his house and he feeds them. Hospitality, again, is a, a sign of a truly changed heart. We also know he was truly changed because he's baptized. Baptism is the new covenant sign of entrance into God's kingdom, and this man identified with Jesus in his death and resurrection, and he's welcomed into God's family through baptism. The next day is the comical scene. The magistrates say, release those guys. And Paul says, no way. He, he knows that they have been condemned without trial and that they are Roman citizens and they had a right to a trial. And so he says, we're not, we're not going to slip out the back door. You tell them to come here and, and let, tell us to our face that we're allowed to leave. And in humiliation, the authorities show up with their tail between their legs and they say, would you, would you guys please leave? <laughs> would you please leave the city? And they do. They stop by Lydia's house and they encourage the church and then they, they move on. So is Paul just being a punk? Is he, uh, is he just being difficult? I don't, I don't think so. Rather, I think this is a public relations move. He wants everyone to see the magistrates come and release them and acknowledge that they are innocent, that they didn't do anything wrong. He wants the people of the city of Philippi and the readers of Acts to know that Christianity is not a law-breaking and subversive faith. That's not what it is. It's not subversive, but Luke does want us to see that, that true Christianity really turns the world upside down. And so four thoughts as we close about, as we think about these characters, about how true Christianity turned Philippi upside down and how it continues to do so wherever it comes. First of, of four thoughts first. Christianity proclaims faith in the midst of idolatry. It proclaims faith in the midst of idolatry. Think about how strange this new group of believers in Jesus was in contrast to the worship of all the false gods that filled the ancient world people in Philippi would have said to this new group of people, well, where's your temple to your God? And they said, well, we don't have a temple. We actually meet at Lydia's house. And, and we don't have a temple because we are the temple. In fact, we as God's people are the temple. God's spirit dwells in us, not in some physical place like you guys think. And they said, well, that's weird. But what about priests? Don't you guys have any priests? I said, well, actually, we're the priests too. <laughs> we are priests in the line of Jesus. And actually Jesus is our great high priest. This doesn't make any sense to them. 
And then they would say, well, what about sacrifices? Don't you guys have to offer sacrifices to appease your God? And they say, actually, Jesus is the sacrifice too. He is the final sacrifice. We don't have to do any sacrifices because Jesus has sacrificed himself. Well, we do offer sacrifices, and we're the sacrifices too. We're the temple, we're the priests, and we're the sacrifices because we offer up our lives as living sacrifices in worship to Jesus out of love. This is a strange thing in the ancient world. It's strange in our world that we may not face temples with gods in America very often. But that's true throughout the world, that people worship in temples and are seeking to appease gods, and they need priests to intercede for them. And we have none of that. This is a faith that's founded in Christ alone, and it's hard to grasp. It turns the world upside down. But it's, it's the proclamation of faith in the midst of those who make idols of things like money and sex and power that this is what makes what God has revealed in Christ so amazing and so transformative. Christianity proclaims faith in the midst of idolatry. Christianity proclaims justice in the midst of oppression. Justice in the midst of oppression. I've, I've sort of tipped my hand on this. But those who've been rescued by the grace of God, we seek to proclaim grace and justice in a world that's filled with oppression. We are concerned at the core about the salvation of eternal souls, but inextricably linked to that is a desire to see people released from all forms of oppression and abuse in this world. And when the church arrives in a town, it should see eternal souls saved, but also injustice should begin to shrivel and die where the church is. Slavery and racism and classism and caste systems and gender inequality and all other forms of oppression run and hide because of the light of the gospel in a city. Christianity proclaims justice in the midst of oppression, and it proclaims joy in the midst of sorrow. Joy in the midst of sorrow. This is the strange thing we see with Paul and Silas praying and singing hymns in the prison, is that we as followers of Jesus understand sorrow and suffering in a different way, and we can have joy in the midst of that that our circumstances don't determine whether or not we can have joy. And that's different from the world, isn't it? It turns the world upside down. And then finally, and I think most poignantly in this passage, is that Christianity proclaims unity in the midst of diversity. So faith in the midst of idolatry, justice in the midst of oppression, joy in the midst of sorrow, and unity in the midst of diversity. In the ancient world, there was great division across gender and economic and social and ethnic lines, just as there is today. But none of those divisions could ever be justified within the church. And so 
if you start to think about Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke walking out of Philippi and they're leaving behind a, a new church, and who's in the church? Well, Lydia's there. She's a well-to-do businesswoman, and her household is there. And probably some others of the women by the riverside who were God-fearing Greeks. I assume that this slave girl came to trust in Jesus, so she's there next to Lydia. What a dichotomy. And then there's this other guy. A Roman jailer is there, and he's part of the new church in Philippi. Lydia, a God-fearing Greek, single, rich businesswoman, a formerly demon-possessed slave girl, and a Roman jailer. That's the core of the church in Philippi. There was no other religion that would, that would ever see those three people together in the same place. The number of social barriers that this group is breaking down, it, it's, it's almost numberless. Gender, ethnic, socioeconomic, and other barriers were broken down. And the church in Philippi exemplifies what Paul writes in Galatians 3. He says in Galatians 3.26, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. That's the church at Philippi, isn't it? No slave or free. No Jew or Greek. No male or female. Everyone's in. All people are welcomed in as co-heirs. And baptism plays a big part in this, doesn't it? Baptism, uh, the baptism of Lydia and the baptism of the Philippian jailer are both mentioned because baptism, not circumcision, is the sign of entrance into God's new covenant kingdom. Those who believe are baptized. Lydia, who had followed all of the Jewish customs, could never make herself ethnically Jewish. And Lydia, and no other woman down by the river, could be circumcised to be a part of God's covenant people. But you know what they could be? Baptized. Everyone who comes into the new covenant can be baptized. I've asked lots of people, so I don't want to press this too hard because no one gave me a real solid answer, but I just wonder if the shift from circumcision to baptism brought equality not only across the, line, the lines of, of Jew and Gentile, but also men and women, that women are allowed to be baptized. They receive the sign and seal of the covenant, and they are co-heirs with Christ and co-members of his body in a way that maybe they couldn't be before under the, the old law of circumcision. Take that or leave it, or think about it more with me, I guess. But what we see is this unique group of people gathered in Philippi, turning the world upside down a group founded on faith and justice and joy and unity. I pray that we would taste all of these things here in our church, that we would feel our worlds turned upside down by the fact that we are people of faith, that we are people who are seeking justice in the midst of a world that's filled with oppression, that we are filled with joy no matter what the circumstances, 
and that we're unified across all lines. And one day Christ will return and he will crush sin and death and all division. And then Christ is going to spread a table for us like Lydia did and like the jailer did. And he's going to invite everyone. All of his children will come and will feast forever in his kingdom of everlasting love. Until then, we turn the world upside down through the proclamation of the gospel.